0: So that clip begs the question, what is a hookah-smoking caterpillar doing in our worship service? (laughs) Well, you know, that is the 1951 Walt Disney adaptation of an 1865 classic called Alice in Wonderland. And Lewis Carroll, who wrote it in 1865, couldn't have known that post-modernity was coming some 100 years later. And yet, as we see in the 1951 version, so it's not exactly the same as the book, but we see in that movie, it's a very strange movie, this paradigm-shifting question about who we are. And the main character is Alice. And at the beginning of the book, the beginning of the movie, she's doing her arithmetic lessons and her grammar grammar lessons, and she's in uh, Enlightenment, England, and modernity is in full swing, and she knows exactly who she is, and she's bored to death of herself. She's bored to death of the world around her. It's rigid, it's clear, it has exclusive truth claims. It says that reality and truth can objectively be known if you just look for it, and she wants to rebel against that, and so she goes down the rabbit hole. And in the 1951 version, what we see in the movie is she longs to get back to the familiar world of modernity. And I don't know if the animators and the storyboard tellers in Walt Disney Studios were thinking of post-modernity, because post-modernity didn't hit for a few decades after, which shows you that this movie was ahead of its time. But Alice, when she's in Wonderland, is very much like each of us in the world in which we live today. You see, in Wonderland, everyone could make up their own truth. They could be as nonsensical as they wanted to be. And the whole power of the clip that I showed you is that a three-inch, if you keep watching, this caterpillar is three inches tall and, and Alice is lamenting the fact that she doesn't feel like herself. She doesn't like being three inches tall. And he becomes offended saying, what's wrong with three inches tall? It is the perfect height. It is my height. But the power of this is that a hookah-smoking, I think that's an important part, right? That's a hallucinogenic. A hookah-smoking three-inch caterpillar has the gall to say to a human being, who are you? And she can't answer because she's trapped in a world that does, doesn't make sense. Everybody gets to decide who they are. You can go to mad tea parties where every day is an unbirthday. You can drink half cups of tea. A deck of cards can threaten your life and so on and so forth. Cats appear and disappear. And so Alice rightly says, I don't know who I am. I don't feel like myself. And this little girl who was rebelling against exclusive truth claims, this idea that there is one truth and it can be discovered and known, finds herself unsettled in a world where there are no truth claims, and caterpillars can question her very identity. You see, we live in that world. We live in wonderland right now where everyone gets to make up their own truths. Gender is totally fluid right now, so our culture would say. You could be a a man or a woman or both or neither, or you can fluctuate between the two. That's Wonderland. Sexuality is fluid. The rights of human beings in utero is up for grabs, and yet, don't spank your children. You see, it just doesn't make sense. And and when I see this, uh, this uh, clip from Alice in Wonderland, I know it's uh, a caterpillar and Alice, and they're both cartoons. But I can't help but think of Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ. The creator of the universe coming down to Pilate's level. Pilate's size. And Pilate says, who do you think that you are? Are you a king? You've said so, says Jesus. And you don't say so, says Pilate. I'm a king, all right, but my kingdom is not of this world. Because this world is a wonderland. It doesn't make sense. So if each of us are very much like Alice, living in a wonderland where everyone gets to make up their own truths, I wonder if we know who we are. Who are you? If a caterpillar came up to you, Would you be able to answer that three-inch caterpillar with some kind of coherent answer? Who are you? If we don't know who we are, we will not find peace, joy, security in the gospel. We won't be able to be productive for the kingdom of God. Everything requires us to have a rock-solid core identity that flows out of the gospel and flows out of who God says we are. Someone asked me, I would probably say, I'm Adam, start with my name, and I'm a pastor, but I'm not saying pastor in any kind of spiritual way. I'm just saying that's my vocation. That's, that's how I collect a paycheck. And you might answer the same thing. You're going to say uh, your name and what you do. A teacher, I'm a teacher, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm a homeschooler. I cut down trees. And that might be as far as you get. Now if I was press, okay, well tell me a little bit more about yourself. And it's funny, when you go and you speak at these other places, they want you to submit a biography of yourself. So I'm thinking, okay, what would I write about myself to give people some knowledge of who I am so that when I come to speak to them, they'll have some sense of who I am. And you know what I do, I always list my education I am these degrees, and I list my family. That's getting a little better, I think. And I list my interests if I'm trying to be cute. I like Johnny Cash. I'll throw it in there sometimes, hoping that, that somebody will think, oh, that's pretty cool. But is that really who I am? It's not wrong, but have I missed the mark? In today's sermon, we're going to see how Paul answered this question. Uh, and there's much for us to learn from his example. We're starting a sermon series on the book of Romans. And uh, I'm doing something I've never done before. Maybe one other time. I'm only going to preach on one verse. But that's not the pace that we're going to go through the whole book. But that, that's as far as I could get. Because, because Paul just packed so much into this introduction that we have to take it in two sermons. Today we're going to take a look at who Paul says he is. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1? I'm going to read the first seven verses, but we're only really going to have time to unpack verse 1. As you're opening your Bibles, would you stand? Romans chapter 1. We stand because this is the Word of God. And when I read this to you, it is God speaking to you through me. This is the most authoritative moment in our time as a church. Romans 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words of God. Let's pray. God, as we seek to understand uh, these, your words, I, I ask that you would help us to discover who we are because we like Paul have been purchased with a price help me to open this text to be faithful to its intent and I ask that your Holy Spirit would take my words and minister to each person here every person that might listen in the future to this message and I ask you to utterly transform our self-understanding that we might be fruitful and productive for your gospel and for your kingdom. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. Now If you read much of Paul, and Paul wrote most of the New Testament, if you read much of Paul, you'll find that he could say what he is saying in a much fewer words. He adds all of these things. So we could simplify these first seven verses and read them this way. From Paul to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Then we could add the second part of his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And and that would be a full sermon in and of itself. I could talk to you about the identity of those to whom he is writing, those in Rome, in verse 7. He says that they are loved by God. There's a lot to unpack there. What does it mean to be loved by God? Well, it's not an earned love. God loved us while we were still sinners. Paul will get into that later in the book. But he wants the people to whom he's writing to know that they're loved, and I want you to know that you are loved by God. The second thing that I could go on and on about is that they're called to be saints. Notice that Paul does not call them sinners. He doesn't call them wretches. He calls them saints, and so they are. What is a saint? A saint is, quite literally, a holy one. So Paul says, I'm writing to you, you are loved by God and you are holy. I want you to know that. The core of who you are, you are a saint, You're a saint who still struggles with sin, but you are not a wretch anymore. You've been saved. So at the core of of our identity, if we're going to understand the book of Romans, we can't come to the book of Romans as wretches. We come to the book of Romans as saints, holy ones, utterly changed and transformed by God. Why? How? How? Because he loves us. That's what it says earlier in the verse. And then I could talk to you about grace and peace. So Gentiles would greet each other, "Karis, grace to you, grace, grace. It's just a greeting. So he's greeting the Gentiles. And peace, though he was writing in Greek, is just a, a Greek version of shalom. Jews still today greet themselves with peace, shalom. So he's writing to a church that is filled with Jews and Gentiles, lastly in verse 7 i could go on and on about that this is this greeting is from god our father and the lord jesus christ that jesus christ is elevated right here in the introduction to be on on par with god the father that together they're sending you this greeting so jesus and the father are one they're equal they're co-eternal co-divine with the holy spirit that's not what we're going to get into this is really, these seven verses are the introduction to Paul's letter to Romans, and and crammed in the middle, because Paul just can't be that simple from Paul to the saints in Rome. It's just against every fiber of who Paul is. He's got to cram it with complexity, and so he does. And he adds two major things in there. We learn two things in this introduction. It's the longest introduction in any of Paul's letters. And we learn, not just who wrote it, it's from Paul, but who it was written to, that's to the saints in Rome, but we also learn in verses 1 through 6, who Paul understood himself to be. So if Paul's going to write us a letter, he says, I want you to know my self-identity. I want you to know that I know who I am. And the second thing that we learn in this introduction is verses 2 through 6, Paul knew what his message was. And so in in verses 2 through 6, we get sort of a summary. This is is what I want to talk to you about in the book of Romans. So we're going to divide this introduction into two sermons. That was a general intro to the intro. But now we're going to divide it into two sermons. Today's message is that first part. Who did Paul understand himself to be? And what kind of impact should that have on us as Christians? And then next week, we're going to take a look at what Paul understood his message to be. And why that and how that should impact us as Christians. So let's take a look at who Paul understood himself to be. Now we can divide this into three aspects or three parts. Paul uh, understands who he is relationally. He has a relational identity. And what we're going to see is Paul knew that he had a master. He identified himself by his relationship to Jesus Christ. Who are you, Paul? Well, I'm a slave of Christ. That's a relational identity. And we all understand this. I'm a husband and a father. I understand relational identity. And so do you. You could be a brother or a sister, aunt or uncle, your daughter or son. Whatever it is, you, you define yourself by your relationship with others. So did Paul, but he didn't talk about any other relationship except the relationship he has with God through Christ. There's a functional aspect, secondly, to his identity. Paul had a role in the church. He, he understood his function in the church. He says that he's called to be an apostle Relational identity, functional identity. And this is what we're really getting at when we say, uh, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a carpenter, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a, a pastor, or I'm, I'm a, an arborist. So that's twice I shout out the arborists. Or I'm a doctor, or I'm a college professor. Whatever it is, that's a functional identity. It's, it's what you do. And thirdly, Paul has a missional aspect to his self-identity. He had a purpose. Uh, He he understood what his life was intended to achieve. He's a missionary. He's been set apart. Set apart for what? Well, we're going to find out that he's set apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's a missionary. He's going to go and he's going to take the message of the gospel to the far reaches of the world. So if we were to summarize that, that's kind of complex, but we can summarize it. Relational, functional, missional identity so just who did paul understand himself to be he was a slave he was an apostle and he was a missionary let's take a look at each of those that will occupy most of our time remaining paul understood himself to be a slave of christ jesus a slave. Now in your Bible, does it say slave? No. What does it say? There's probably two options. Servant. Anyone have anything other than a servant? It's almost like servant. Bond servant. Right. Servant or bond servant. So bond servant, I'm guessing you're out of the New King James. Yeah. Okay. So actually the New King James wins on this translation over the ESV because bond servant, they're trying to get this is not just voluntary servitude. The whole idea of a bondservant is somebody who's owned more or less. But even bondservant doesn't go far enough. And if you have an ESV Bible, take a look at the footnote. It goes down it'll, it'll say slave or slave. That's because the Greek word doulos always means slave, not servant, not helper. Slave. Paul's Identity was, relu- was rooted in his relationship to Christ. And when he thought about his relationship with Christ, he could have picked all kinds of paradigms. We know that the Bible talks about we are, um, we are the body of Christ, so he could have gone there. He, we're, we're the branches, he is the vine. He could say, I'm a branch of Christ. Uh, he could have talked about being the bride of Christ. He could have talked about being the son of C- God through Christ. But he didn't. He went to slave. And there's a book that I commend to you. It's by John MacArthur. It's called Slave. And in this book, it's not a hard read, but it's a profound read. And in this book, John MacArthur makes the observation that actually in the New Testament, do you know what the number one uh, self-identity of Christians, by Christians, relationally was? More often than not, they refer to themselves as slaves of Christ Jesus. More than any other thing, And there are other metaphors that we could employ, but more than anything else, and for Paul especially, he identified himself first and foremost, most dominantly, as a slave of Christ. So I I commend that to you, that book, because I don't have time to unpack everything that's in there. But what I want to do to help us to understand what does it mean to be a slave of Christ, you can understand why English translations are hesitant to use the word slave. Why is that? because of the awful experience that the Western world has had with slavery in the British Empire and in the American colonies and in the American Republic. Slavery is this awful thing that involved the kidnapping of people from one continent, taking them to another continent and then forcing them to be your animal more or less, which is awful. It's, it's against everything that the Bible teaches us about human dignity. It, it's everything against what the Bible says about being created in the image of God. So how could Paul say that he's a slave? Is he saying that he's not human, that he's less than human? Is he uh, debasing himself? Not at all. And this is where we have to get into slavery in the first century. What, What was slavery in the first century? It wasn't always good, okay? There were evil masters. We live in a fallen world, so slavery was often violent and vicious and grotesque and terrible, but... Neither in the Roman experience of slavery nor in the Hebrew Old Testament uh, provision for slavery was slavery what we understand slavery to be. So we just have to know that. I'm not saying that slavery was good in the first century, that it was always enjoyable, but it's not the kind of slavery that we have seen and experienced in the recent past in the West. So let me talk to you for a minute about slavery in the Roman Empire. Slavery in the Roman Empire in the first century was extremely common. One-fifth of the empire was slaves. That's some 12 million people. Now how would you be enslaved in the Roman Empire? It was not that you were kidnapped and forced into slavery. Now that might have happened, but that wasn't the dominant paradigm of Roman slavery. The dominant paradigm of Roman slavery was that as the Roman Empire was expanding, they would go into these people groups and the people would have an option. They would either submit to Roman authority and very often become Roman citizens as the empire. That was one of the things that Augustus understood is we need to give people some buy-in to this empirical experiment, and if we just make them our slaves, they won't buy, in. eventually, there's a tipping point. You get too many slaves, and they'll overthrow their masters. That's exactly what Pharaoh was afraid of, too. It's actually what some of American uh, politicians were afraid of in the 1860s. So what Augustus did is he went out and he he gave people an option. If you capitulate to our power, if you buy in, we'll build a theater, we'll give you a hippodrome, we'll give you chariot races, and you can become citizens or you can fight against us. But if you fight against us, know that when we conquer you, we will make you slaves. And so slaves of the Roman Empire were acquired by military victory. Which is not good, but it's not the same as kidnapping someone. So most slaves were conquered soldiers and then there was a whole second, third, fourth, and fifth wave of slavery by the children of conquered soldiers that were born into slavery and therefore were indentured into slavery for their life. That's slavery in the Roman Empire. Slavery in the Roman Empire also came about through uh, economic means. It was, uh, for lack of a better, better phrase, a social safety net. So if somebody was impoverished, couldn't look after themselves in debt, they could actually be purchased. And in some cases, their life would radically improve because their master would provide everything for them and then they would work for their master. But they're out of debt. They're taken care of. Their family is taken care of. So slavery Oh, one last thing. The other thing about slavery in the Roman Empire is that it was a huge spectrum. There there were these awful expressions of slavery, like I've said, where if you get a brutal master, then your experience of slavery is going to be brutal. But there were also benevolent masters and in fact, it was not uncommon to see slaves doing every kind of work that any free person would do. And, and the more prestigious, the more powerful, the more wealthy the owner, or the master, the more opportunity there was for the slaves to advance themselves in society. But at the end of the day, their earnings came to their master and they had no freedom except the freedom that their master would give them to go out and do whatever it was. But there were very prominent individuals in society who were actually slaves. And, and there were some slaves who belonged to prominent members of society, their masters, who were very well respected by other free people because their identity was connected with their Roman master. What about slavery in the Old Testament? We often get embarrassed as evangelical Christians that God gave provision for slavery in the Old Testament. Well, he did. Again, there was provision for conquering foreign nations. But there was also, and this is the biggest one, the the main intent of slavery in the Old Testament, fellow Israelites could sell themselves into slavery if they they were not economically self-sustaining. If they had accumulated debts that they could not pay off, or they could not look after themselves or their families, they would then look for somebody to purchase them as a slave. How do you purchase someone as a slave under Old Testament law? Well, you pay off their debt. And in exchange, uh, the slave who has been purchased works off their debt by working for their master. Now one thing that is really important in all of the legislation in the Old Testament about slavery is all of the rules and regulations were meant to prev- excuse me prevent the abuse of slaves. So all of that, that le- legislation in the Torah is meant to say uh, preserve the human dignity of the slaves. Remember, you too were slaves in Egypt. So this... Slave of yours is created in the image of God, and treat him or her likewise, accordingly. Another really important thing in the Old Testament provision for slavery is slavery was limited in Israel to six years. You could only be enslaved for six years. In the seventh year, your master had to let you go. So it doesn't matter how big your debt was. If you find someone to pay off your debt, the maximum that you have to work for them for is six years. And in the seventh year, they have to let you go. But then you might say, well, what about those slaves whose life was much improved by slavery? We don't think that way because we have a different paradigm of slavery. Remember, there's no social safety net. There's There's no Canadian pension plan. So what if slavery is a better option for you and your family than being free and then just going out and not being able to provide for yourself again and falling into debt, et cetera, et cetera. Well there's provision in Exodus 21 verse 1 to 6 that if a slave after six years says you know life is pretty good I've got a good master my family is taken care of and I prefer this arrangement than freedom then what would happen is that slave would declare his desire or her desire to be enslaved indefinitely and in front of everyone he, he or she would come and and if it was a man his whole family would come and pierce his ear in, in the public, in, in, in public and everyone would know that by that piercing what that person was saying is that they have voluntarily chosen a life of slavery and that they have found a master who has agreed to provide for them until the end of their days. So I hope you could see that this is a very different concept of slavery. And we have to get your head around that. Now, having said that, so slavery in both the Roman Empire and in uh, the Old Testament provision for slavery was much better than the American and British empirical experience of slavery. Nevertheless, it was still slavery. So we don't want to overly romanticize it. The slave lost his or her autonomy. The slave had no opportunity to exercise his or her free will anymore. Everything had to go through the approval of the master. The slave did not belong to himself or herself. He or she belonged to another. And the quality of life of slavery, both in Rome and in Israel, because let's not fool ourselves into thinking that the Israelites just followed the law perfectly, the quality of life for a slave both in Rome and in Israel strongly depended on the character and the benevolence of the master. So slavery still was not what we would consider a good thing. But sometimes it was a necessary thing and sometimes it was a beneficial arrangement. And So Paul says Knowing full well, I'm a slave of Christ. What's he saying? Under the Roman paradigm, this is what Paul means. Remember, Paul's a Roman citizen. He understands slavery in the Roman context. And he wouldn't use this word if he says, yeah, but I don't mean that. This is what Paul means. He says, I have been conquered by Christ. Because the number one way that a slave was put into slavery in Rome was you resist the power of Caesar. You resist the expansion of the Roman Empire. And you fight to the death or to slavery to preserve your autonomy. And Paul says, That was me. I fought against the king of glory. I fought to the death or to the, or to slavery, and, and as Blair Hansen preached for us two weeks in a row, he fought and was conquered by Christ. And Paul says, because Christ conquered me and yet I live I am indebted to him I am enslaved to him I no longer belong to myself and that's exactly what he He says it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me he's not talking about uh, somehow not having any subjective id or ego anymore he was still an autonomous person but he says I don't belong to myself It's no longer I who live. I I don't have control of myself. I am a slave to the one who conquered me, and I have no will but his will. I can do nothing but that it is approved by him. I I belong to him. He's my master, and I'm his slave. What else did Paul mean when he said that he was a slave of Christ? Well, he knew he was seeped in the Old Testament. So, what did he mean? I had a debt to pay to God. I had an infinite sin debt that I couldn't pay. But Jesus took my sin debt and paid it for me. So now I work for Him. I'm enslaved to Him. Take my ear and pierce it Because if I was to be let free again, out from underneath this benevolent master who paid off my debt, I would just accumulate an infinite sin debt again. So I belong to Christ. He conquered me and He paid off my debt. So now my question for us, is slavery part of our core identity as Christians? Let me make it more personal. Is slavery a part of your core identity? Do you know that you've been conquered? That you were rebelling against God till death or slavery? And because you yet live, you've been conquered not unto death, but unto slavery. That you hated God. you were fighting a war against God. But He won. And now you're His. Do you remember day by day that you had an infinite sin debt that has been paid off and into your account rather than an infinite debt is an infinite credit of righteousness accredited to your account. Do you know that? So to whom do you belong do you belong to yourself here's the here's the danger of where we're at right now we know the answer but do we live this answer are you or are you not a slave of christ Here's the problem that I just want to acknowledge and I think this is a pervasive problem I'll say in Canada but it's bigger than Canada in the church. We wouldn't say it this way so you, you have to work with me and ask yourself is this true even though you would never say these words that rather than being a slave to Christ Christ works for you. He's your slave. You're going to live your life the way you want to live it, and you're going to call on him to do your bidding when you need him, when you want him, and he's going to do just enough for you to get you out of hell and into heaven. That's not what Paul is saying when he says that he's a slave of Christ. But that's what most of our lives are betraying about us. We're not slaves of Christ. Christ is our slave. And that is evil. John MacArthur says in this book that slaves are exclusively owned. You can only have one master. Who's your master? Is it Christ or is it you? They are completely submissive. How do we submit to Christ as our master? Well, the Word of God is the Word of God. It's the command of Christ. And we submit ourselves to it no matter what. No matter how it makes us feel. No matter what our culture says about it. No matter what our experience has been. This is the Word of Christ. Arthur says third that we are singular in devotion. Slaves are singular in devotion. A slave is devoted to his master or her master. It can only do those things that the master says go and do. Is that how we are organizing our lives? Is that how we're planning our lives? Fourth, slaves are totally dependent. Food, shelter, clothing comes from the master. That's part of this ancient paradigm of slavery. How many of us are totally dependent on the Lord? The decisions we make put us in a position to totally depend on the Lord for our daily bread. Or are we saying, well, I'll depend on God for this category of something, mostly wants, definitely resurrection from the dead, forgiveness of sins, and therapy. We depend on God for a, 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 a nice sort of warm feeling about who we are. That will depend on, but I'm going to take care of myself over here. Now, what I am not saying is that we're not wise. We, we must be careful with the resources that God gives to us, and we do that by planning. But is that really what we're doing? And do we put ourselves in a position in which we are totally dependent on God are we really slaves carefully handling the resources of our master so that we can be approved by him or are we accumulating resources for ourselves and deciding about these resources for ourselves without ever consulting our master are we making decisions based on a total submission to the Word of God? Or are we very worldly? Making decisions about our lives that any atheist could make decisions like that. This is kind of hard hitting, isn't it? But he, Paul said it. He's the one that said he was a slave. And this is what a slave is. Fifth, personally accountable. And Jesus gives so many parables like this. There was a master and he had slaves and he went away and he came back and he found his slaves not doing what he had asked them to do. What do you think the master of the vineyard will do? What do you think the master of the house will do? He'll tie up those servants and throw them outside or he will kill those servants or he will uh, uh, um, imprison those servants. like, Jesus doesn't mince any words here. We are personally accountable. And one day, and this is absolutely certain, you will meet your master. And you will be held accountable for your life. Husbands, fathers, you will be accountable for the life of your family. Pastors, elders, you will be accountable for the life of your church, which is why I'm preaching to you as hard as I am this morning. It's coming from love because it's the word of God. That's the hardest part of any Christian's identity, but it's also the most freeing. You know, in, in Rome and Israel, the quality of life of the slave was entirely dependent upon the benevolent character or malicious character of the master. What kind of a master are we enslaved to? The kind of master who says, I'll die for you. I will die for you because I love you. There's also a myth that we can actually not be enslaved to something. You're either enslaved to sin or Christ. And If you're enslaved to sin, the devil is your master. Which master do you want? I'm a slave of Christ, says Paul. Can that become, if it's not already, a part of our core identity it's a challenge I would encourage you to pray through it the next two will go a little bit quicker because we don't have to unpack sort of the social historical context of what it means to be a slave second thing that Paul says you'll see it there in verse one he says Paul not only am I a slave of Christ Jesus but I'm called to be an apostle Paul understood himself to be an apostle Of Christ Jesus Paul's identity then was rooted in the function by which Christ used him that that he was uh, functionally useful to Christ in other words Paul had a role in the local church and in the broader church he was called to be an apostle if you remember in Ephesians chapter 4 you have Paul uh, that God gave first apostles then prophets then evangelists, then shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So in, in Ephesians 4, you have five different roles given. You have apostle, which Paul says he is, you have prophet, you have evangelist, and you have shepherd-teacher, and you have saints. And then if you continue reading Ephesians 4, then the saints category gets built up that everyone is to be building up, contributing to the work of Christ in the local church. And so, when we think about who we are, we have to ask ourselves, what is our function in the church? What is our role to play? Paul was an apostle. Now, apostle means a sent one. It it literally means somebody who is sent. So, when Paul says that he's an apostle, he says, I've been sent not of my own accord. I've been sent by Christ Jesus. And, And in that sense, there's a small a apostle that all Christians are. All Christians are sent we're all sent out to, to, from Christ to, to, to have some kind of a function in the local church. So in, in that sense, we're all apostles. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He doesn't mean small a apostle. Because he's starting his letter. He wants people to know that this letter that they're about to read comes with the authority of an apostle. So apostle in the early church was someone who, there's two things. They were an eyewitness of the resurrection. You could not be an apostle unless you were an eyewitness of the resurrection. So Paul is saying, look, I've seen the resurrected Christ. And secondly, those who had seen Christ, some of them were given the office of apostle, and that is they spoke and governed over the, the first generation of the church with the authority of Christ. They spoke with the authority of Christ. They organized the church with the authority of Christ. They established a foundation with the authority of Christ. And that was only one season of the church. That was before the New Testament was written. There are no apostles now because that office of apostle has run its course. The church has been established. The foundation is set. The, the words of Christ have been written down. So there are no big A apostles today. So when Paul says, look, I know my function in the church, my function is to establish the church with the authority of Christ. Now, none of us can be apostles. But let us not miss what Paul is getting at. He says, I understand who I am based upon my function within the church. So just because we're not apostles Doesn't mean we don't have a very specific function in the church. Each of us is called by Christ Jesus when we're saved to make a functional contribution to the life of the church. So in in our core identity, we have to understand ourselves not just as a slave of Christ but also as a particular unique to us contributing member of the local church is that a part of our core identity honestly for me it's a little bit easier because my vocation is in the church so I say I'm a pastor and so that functions as vocation and functionality in the church so it's a little bit more difficult for the rest of you who are not pastors nevertheless are you first and foremost your job or are you first and foremost a contributing member to this local church I would suggest to you although our vocations are valuable and used by God and we're called into them by God that our function in the local church is to have supremacy what is your function here among us what if paul had said in this paul a slave of christ jesus called to be a tent maker and i'm going to tell you some things about the church Just wouldn't have the same effect. Was tent making part of Paul's identity? Yes, it was. He was a tent, he made tents for a living. So he never collected a paycheck from the church. So is it wrong for you to say, I'm a teacher, or I'm a doctor, or I'm a builder? No. That is a legitimate part of your identity. But is it core? Does it get to the heart of who you are? Which brings us to the question, is the church part of your core identity? Is the church the center of your life? Or does the church orbit around the outside of your life and you step in and out at will because the center is something very different you're not organizing your life around the church. You fit the church in from time to time. See, that's, that's a problem if that is true of you. And the reason I say this is Christ has to be the center of our life, and you cannot make Christ the center of your life without also making the church the center of your life. I'm not talking about time commitment. You will not spend as much time in the church as you do in your vocations. It's not about time. It's about identity. What's the center of your life? What is your organizing principle for for your life? What comes first when you think about your life? Is it Christ and his church, or is it something else? Where is the church, center or peripheral? For Paul, the church was central. Which brings us to our third identity that Paul has. Paul understood himself to be set apart as a missionary by Christ Jesus. Paul's identity was rooted in the mission that Christ gave him. Paul had a purpose, he was set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart, it means that Paul didn't set himself apart, he was set apart. This is something that God does. God sets us apart. What does it mean to be set apart? Well, it means a couple of things. On on the most general level, this is very important, every Christian is set apart from the world. We were once in the world, and then we are set apart from the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. And Paul's talking about that. So so then the question is is, where do you feel more comfortable? In the church or in the world? Because although we are supposed to be in the world, we're not supposed to be of the world. We shouldn't be comfortable there. We shouldn't be comfortable in the world. We should be comfortable in the church. This is is where we belong. We've been set apart from the world. But there are a lot of Christians in Canada today, and you in the Lord evaluate where you are in this, who are more comfortable in the world than they are in the church And so we make the church to look as much like the world as we can. It's ridiculous. And it just betrays an unsaved attitude. We've been set apart from the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. But. Paul had a unique mission to fulfill. He was set apart not just from the world, but he was set apart from other Christians. He was uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. He was a missionary. He was on mission. And he went out and he shared the gospel with people. Paul had a unique race to be run. And at the end of his life, he says, I've run my race. Now I pour myself out as a drink offering. Would it be that each of us could say the same thing? We were set apart from the world, and we were set apart from other Christians to do something very specific for Christ. Do you even know what you've been set apart to do? What's your mission? See, every Christian has been set apart from the world, and every Christian has been set apart to do something unique to make a unique contribution, a a personally tailored made mission within the church. What's your mission? And what often happens is we start fighting about missions. We start fighting that, well, everyone should have the mission that Christ has given to me. That doesn't make any sense. What if we all had the same mission? Then, Then we're not set apart. God has uniquely endowed each of us with particular passions and, and and a particular focus that we got to run that race and we, the, the trick then is or the challenge is to run our individual missions together it's what we're talking about right now as we set up our missions ministry if you don't know what your mission is what you've been created and saved by God to do it, d- you better be praying about that Talk to your loved ones about that. Talk to me about that. And once you find out what your mission is, are you fulfilling your mission? Or have you been distracted lately by lesser things? We can busy ourselves until the day we die. Easy. That, does, that doesn't mean that we'll fulfill our mission. On the day you die, do you want to look back and say that you were, got distracted? Or do you want to look back and say, I ran my race. I fulfilled my mission. It's all about priorities. And I get it's hard in Canada to have the right priorities as Christians because we're diluted in our culture, but we're also diluted in the church. The world is very present in the local church in Canada. And I, I say the, chur- the world is very present in this local church. The world is very present in my own family life. The world is very present in my own life. But John said anyone who loves the world hates God. Anyone who loves Christ will hate the world. Paul knew who he was. He was a slave. He defined himself based on his relationship with Christ. He was an apostle. He had a function, a role to play in the church. And he had been set apart with a particular mission, and he ran that race until the end. So going back to the beginning, are we like Alice in Wonderland? And a little three-inch caterpillar could come up to us and ask us, who are you? And we say, I have no idea who I am. I, I am drowning in this sea of post-modernity and i have no clue who i am or will we devote ourselves to the scripture to say i know who i am i'm a slave of christ i have a function a contributing role to play in the local church And I have been given a personally tailor-made, unique mission, a race to be run, and I am running it. Which way do you want to live your life? These are critically important questions. Each of us must answer them for ourselves. Fathers, husbands, you must lead your families in asking these questions and coming to answers to these questions so that we with Paul can make our lives count for the gospel of God let's pray heavenly father please have mercy on us we are We are in a time and a part of the world that is absolutely confused about reality. And when we're confused about reality, it's as if we're in wonderland and we don't know who we are. Would you help us? Would you remind us through the preaching of your word and the reading of your scriptures and the fellowship of the saints that that we are slaves That we belong to Christ. We have a role to play in this church. And you have graced us with unique races to run. So that we don't waste our life on lesser things. God, thank you for reminding us of who we are in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.